Yo, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. Today, my guest, Greg Hahn, Chief Creative Officer of BBDO New York. Greg joined BBDO as an ECD in 2005 and became CCO in 2013, leading some of the industry's most groundbreaking work for brands like HBO, FedEx, and AT&T. He did the award-winning HBO Voyeur, which along with winning multiple Grand Prix at Cannes, was selected by the One Club as one of their best of the digital decade. He also helmed the wildly successful HBO Imagine project, and let us not forget the industry-changing BMW films. Over the past year, Greg has helped lead BBDO to one of its greatest years ever, which included a clean sweep of Network of the Year honors across ADC, CAN, DNAD, and One Show. Prior to joining BBDO, Greg worked at Fallon, Minneapolis, where he first connected with David Lubars and created many famous works, including one of my all-time favorites, the Buddy Lee campaign for Lee Jeans. Recently, Greg was named as one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company, and he currently serves on the creative advisory board for Snapchat. This is Greg Hahn and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from? Are we and starting now? We, we've, yeah, actually all of this is, yeah. Oh, okay. is we, we get going. Yeah, I, we just, I just yeah. have them start recording. And That's how every chat. podcast used to start. It's like, wait, this is on? This is on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I start with okay. where are you from and what did your parents do? I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad is a dentist, still is in Cincinnati, and my mom was my mom, yeah, you know, yeah. house housewife, I guess is what you would call it back then. I don't know you. This is the first time we've met. I only know you through, you know, industry trades and your reputation and pictures of you. And you don't seem like a guy from Cincinnati whose dad is a dentist. <laughs> I, I, I kind of take that as a compliment. No, I um, grew up, lived there all my life until I was an adult, and I still go back there. You yeah. do Cincinnati still in your blood. It's still, it's somewhere. I, we, that's where my family is. And we go there for, you know, holidays sometimes. Yeah. But um, as soon as I graduated from Ohio State, which you probably didn't, wouldn't suspect either, I moved to uh, West Coast. Just, <laughs> yeah, I kind of sensed it wasn't in my blood either. What did 12-year-old Greg want to be when he grew up? I started out, I, I, I had a passion for drawing. So I always thought I was going to be like a cartoonist or something like that. Like my my dream when I I guess the twelve year old Greg would dream of working like at Hanna Barbera or something like that. Yeah, I used to draw all, all you know obsessed with cartoons. I was the same, but I should have set my sights higher. The first time I went to SeaWorld and saw a caricature artist, yeah. I was like, "That's that's what I have to do. Yeah. That's my dream job: caricature artist at SeaWorld." Well, even that's not that far from Hanna Barbera. <laughs> if I could go back and look at their stuff, you know, I should have gone for like Disney. But anyway, I didn't end up doing any of that. But um. I was always in, into something artistic or creative. I, I don't have a, a scientific, analytic kind of faculty. It's just not, not in my wheelhouse. From the look, and maybe this is presumptuous, I would have thought you would say my plan was to revitalize the Ramones. <laughs> close, close. Because after 12-year-old Greg, I, I ended up like losing interest in art and became obsessed with guitar. Yeah. So that was that was my master plan was I was going to be like the next Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Did did you get far in that dream? No, because we already had a good Eddie Van Halen. Like, <laughs> right. We didn't need another one. <laughs> no, I, I I got all the way up until I was studying at this place called Musicians Institute. It was in the Scums of Hollywood, in ni- nineteen eighty seven. You know, it was like it was the throes of hair metal days, and I was a young kid living in some pit in Hollywood. And I went to the school, and there were some master guitar players. These guys were like the best of the best. And I had—I remember this was my my turning point moment, was that I was um, taking lessons from this guy who I would idolize. Like, 
if I could just be half as good as this guy, I'd be so happy, right? And, you know, he was a musician in L.A. making a living. And I remember one night coming up from class, cutting through a parking lot, and I saw that he was the attendant at the parking lot. And I'm thinking, man, if this guy, as good as he is, cannot make a living, I've got no shot. Right. <laughs> so it's just so much out of your control, so much luck. It's, it's about more than anything. Uh, you know, it's not, not about talents as much as it is about timing. I just, that was not the life for me. So I had plan B. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it happens. Sometimes that's a great way to discourage you from a career that, that you realize despite your love of it that you may not succeed in, but it still happens to me in advertising, either a great piece of advertising or just as a writer and, and, and being in advertising means we get to make, you know, content of all kinds. Right. And then you see something like, like Westworld. Mm -hmm. And I just think to myself, like, you know, if I had just devoted my entire life to writing long form stories, if it's all I cared about 20 hours a day, I still couldn't have done this. Yeah, I know. It's funny you mentioned that because I just started watching it from scratch. Like I had never seen it before. I started watching it a couple of weeks ago. And I'm the same way. It's like so deep and so well written. And it's like, how do you even how do you even get there? Yeah. yeah. Page two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. yeah, yeah. So so at what point did this profession start to kind of creep into your consciousness as a as a thing that you might like to do? Well, I always had this interest in um, writing and creativity. And I kind of, you know, in the back of my mind, that was always going to be my plan B because I was, you know, just, I wanted to be in advertising just from watching, you know, Bosom Buddies and right. things like that. It seemed like a fun career. I had no idea how to do it. But I, I studied journalism in Ohio State and I figured, okay, I'll go out to LA or San Diego is where I ended up and apply for jobs at ad agencies. I had good grade point average and I had my journalism degree and, you know, my resume that said I worked at Pizza Tower during the. You know, I had no qualifications. And then I, I ended up going around to different agencies and they were like, well, do, do you have a portfolio? Do you have your work? I had no idea what they were talking about. And then I, I hooked up with the art director at, at the time it was a really good agency in San Francisco. It's where John Vitro and John Robertson, who, names that are still around, were working. And uh, when this, the art director there, a guy named Wade, took me under his belt and he's like, here is what good advertising is. You show me Archive Magazine in like CAs and all this kind of stuff. He's like, this is what you need to aspire to. And you need to learn how to do that and show that you can do that in order to get a job. So he, he coincidentally enough, had a uh, concepting class that he taught once a week at his house. So I took that for like six weeks and enough to get me started. And I just started schlepping around my dirty Kinko's, you know, copied, you know, book to different agencies and finally worked my way in. Yeah, what was the pathway to Fallon, Minneapolis? Um, through my first job was at Mendelssohn Zine, which was a very small shop. But it was good, actually a good place to start because there's no writers on staff except for me and I had an art director partner. But they brought in a lot of good freelancers from like Wyden and then eventually hired um, Harold Einstein was was the only other writer there. So I learned a lot from him. We, we became really good friends. Then I ended up at uh, Ruben Poster in um, Santa Monica working on Honda and some other stuff. And while I was doing that, it, I probably shouldn't say this because my what, what are they going to do? <laughs> but anyway, at that time, it was kind of slow there. So I was freelancing on the side, and we picked up a project from John Robert, who was running like this freelance side gig thing. And he got an assignment from Fallon to, to work on a Coke spot. And we did it, and they ended up you know going with a spot that uh, me and my partner did. And, you know, this is all under the radar. Nobody knew they're, you know, I'm producing Coke spots for Fallon while working at Ruben Buster. 
but then the Bill Westbrook at the time was the creative director, and he, he has to see the book of the the writer who you know presented all this Coke stuff, and then he brought me up, and I got a job there. And the good news for you is there's a special talking to ourselves podcast defense fund in case there's any lawsuits that incur <laughs> from you admitting that you freelanced while you were a full-time employee. So, so have no fear. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'll be back to you. <laughs> so, so that's, that's quite a uh, cultural shift from Santa Monica to Minneapolis, although yes. maybe it felt a little bit more like Cincinnati. No, no, in some no. Ways, it no? felt like every reason I left. Yeah. I actually really liked Minneapolis as a city. It's the only, the only thing I don't like about Midwest is the weather. Right. So that was the biggest culture shock. But I remember going there thinking, you know, getting off the off the, the flight, and it was automatically 40 degrees cooler as the fall still. And then going to Minneapolis, Fallon, just going, please do not let me like it here. I cannot live here. I just can't take this, these winters. And then I, I, as soon as I walked in the doors of Fallon, I'm like, oh, I got to go. Right. Like, if they'll have me, I will. I cannot say no to this because it was just so inspiring. And all these people in CA who, you know, Dean Buckhorn, Luke Sullivan, all these, you know, legends at that time were – there, you know, with their work on the walls. So, you know, something I couldn't turn down. And David Lubars came a couple years after He was you? after that, yeah. I was there a few years before David was. Were you suspicious of him when he arrived? Um, Not really. <laughs> I, uh, I was too young. Because it'd be a great story if you were suspicious no, of him. No, no, but there were, they were in New York, that's for sure. Um, I, I was young enough and not <laughs> that ingrained in the Fallon culture at that time that I was kind of like, okay, cool, somebody new is coming, you know, I, I didn't have that tight of I didn't have enough time to bond with uh, Bill, who was there before, so it wasn't it wasn't a huge dramatic shift to me. And then immediately when I saw him, I was like, okay, he's probably more my type of guy anyway. Yeah, I've heard his side of the story. I'm curious what well, your rec- what your recollection I remember, of sort of yeah. the what's the, his side the the early um, the early encounters with this guy who would end up being between you and him one of the great sort of advertising marriages of the last 15 years. Do you remember? Um, I, I do you do, remember it was an early encounter? I do. I remember the first time, which is probably the, what he told you, was um, the first time I ever really did something for him was I was, you know, hanging out. I wasn't married at the time, so I'd stay a little bit later than most people because Minneapolis, you marry at like 25. Right. <laughs> so me and my partner were hanging out, and David came running around the halls with some papers in his hand, and he's just like, you know, we have a Sports Illustrated client who's not happy with the work. The meeting's in two days. We need someone to work on it. You guys... Why don't you and this, you guys just work on this thing and show me where we are. Like, I think it was literally the next morning. So me not knowing much about sports, just like, oh, shit. You know, first thing is for David Lubars on a topic I have no idea what I'm talking about. And it's got to be awesome because it's, so it was sort of a trial by fire. Yeah. And uh, he liked what we did. So he, um, it turned out very well for, for us. You know, we kind of a good way to get to know him. Yeah, and the work sold, so he was happy about that, and uh, we end up doing the, a campaign that from that little spark that went on for a couple of years. Yeah, the best way to get to know somebody is to jump in the trenches with them, yeah, and to come through for them. I'm sure you, yeah. at a place like BBDO, it's big, and maybe sometimes HR people are like, "Yeah, Greg, you got to like uh, go and have coffee with so and so or yeah. meet the interns." Like, if they want to get to know me, I'll be in this room reviewing work at this time, yeah, and anyone who can come be additive to that that uh, that room is welcome. I mean, I'm so not good at that type of thing, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it, was, it was it was actually a really good way. It forced me and David to work together tightly, and um, for, it forced me to get to know him, which I probably would have taken a while if I didn't get that assignment. You guys did Buddy Lee at Fallon. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you that in 2001, I was a junior in college. My brother was kind of just getting going in advertising. Mm-hmm. And he sends me a link, to, you know, and this is 
This is long <laughs> before high speed, yeah. long before high speed yeah. internet, long before YouTube and long before smartphones. He sends me a link to something called the Buddy Lee Staring Contest. Oh, and dude, yeah. that brought me so much joy and just opened my mind to what was possible with the internet. I mean, you look back at it now and it's really simple and it's actually, it's, it's brilliant in its simplicity. And I remember bringing each of my roommates into my room and showing them and sort of experiencing it for the, for the first time over and over with them again. So I just wanted to tell you, well, good job on Buddy Lee Staring Contest. But that obvi- actually was done by a team that followed up. That was the second year, third year Buddy Lee. So I didn't work on that particular execution, but those guys will be more than happy. I'll tell them to tune in. Yes. They did, yeah, they did a great job following up on that. I did the first introduction of Buddy Lee, and then um, I started, I, I, for some reason, I guess logistics was working on something else. I couldn't do the, the third year of it. So Yeah. The original film had took a hold on me too, which was directed by a sort of young unknown named Spike Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, the, I sort of, bu- I bracket that with the staring contest as well, which is like, this is at a time when brands are not making sort of long form film yeah. for internet with any faith that anyone is out there watching. Yeah. It's interesting because the internet was not a thing you would put long form content on. It was like 20 second. you know, it took so long to download stuff. So, Props to the media people. It was actually like an early form of branded content because it ran on Comedy Central as a piece of programming. In, like we did ads for Tune In for this commercial. It was th- six minutes long that ran on Comedy Central late night. Yeah. So the internet was like second thought to that. It happened to run later on the internet, but it was really a, a old school TV branded content thing. Yeah. And it's yeah. back then, and even maybe to some extent now, it's still sort of one of the highest honors when you make something that's you know longer than an ad but shorter than a show yeah. but it feels more like a show than an ad yeah it was a great experience i mean like i said spike was just kind of starting out getting his feet so you know he was fun to work with back then yeah and worked with him since you launched buddy lee you did bmw films which is you know goes down in the annals of advertising history and as you look at kind of some of these signature works from your career these are things that you know in the three to five year period that they came out were you know, very tied into your professional identity. And then our work kind of ages in dog years. You do something that is groundbreaking and then the industry catches up. But you, as you look at sort of your track record of your career, there seems to be this sort of constant like reinvention, you know, what is yeah. the next most interesting thing? Do you do you think about your career in those terms? Uh, I'm super paranoid. Like uh, as soon as I'm done with something, it's old and dated and I got to worry about the next thing. You yeah. Know, the, that whole thing about the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason. <laughs> you know, you gotta have to keep going forward. I I, I do have this sense that um, you, your stuff just has a shelf life of about six months, and then it's well, that's that feels old when you look at, it, especially now because technology changes everything. Um, I feel that you know if you're not constantly doing the next great thing, then what you've done in the past is is you know history. Yeah. Yeah, you and you and David have now worked together for what fifteen years? Is yeah, that right? exactly. And uh, and and as I said, I mean that is that has sort of gone down as one of the great creative marriages. You just recently watched him get inducted into the One Club Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the relationship started with you coming through for him um, on an assignment with two days to go, and then you keep coming through. Um, you guys go to BBDO together. Do you? Is there time to psychoanalyze that relationship or? Or, or is there? Ooh, is, is there <laughs> there's so much work still. I, I yeah. know. I, I know from talking to him, and I know you agree. There's you guys still view it as there's a lot of work left to be done. Oh, you guys yeah. just got done being agency of the year again. Like, is there time to sort of celebrate the relationship, or is all that matters tomorrow? All that matters is tomorrow. In the day after tomorrow, we'll be on the beach somewhere. But 
celebrating that relationship, but we, we really, yeah, like, we don't like sit back and go, look how great that was. No, it's more about, okay, what's going on now? What's going on now? But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a really great relationship. You know, he's been a mentor and, you know, if without him, I, who knows where I'd be. How do you guys work together? Because two super senior guys, two guys whose reputations precede them, is it almost like, well, if Greg's working on it, David doesn't need to worry about it, and there's sort of a divide and conquer mentality? Or do you yeah. guys find yourself sort of in the trenches on the same stuff? A, a mix of both. We um, definitely divide and conquer on certain things, but we, we're so simpatico as far as our tastes yeah. go that it's not – it's it's who's ever available at that time. And it, it's interesting. When we're both working on something and, and we're apart and people send it to us at the same time – Almost ninety nine percent of the time, we pick the same stuff and have the same comments. So we, we're we're able to divide and conquer within you know projects yeah. that much. But um, yeah, we 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 work pretty tightly. I'm in, you know with him a lot, but uh, you know we don't double efforts because there's a lot to be done. Yeah. Speaking to that point, I mean, lots of clients, large clients. Um, you know, you seem to me like a guy who is incredibly hands on. How do you think about your approach to any given day? Do you th- do you do you program it quite strictly, or is no. there sort of a natural ebb and flow to things? It's a natural ebb and flow. I mean, my door is kind of open. People come and go in there, and whatever project is hot, then that's what I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. It's it, there's very little structure to it. It's it, it feels more like a, a, a startupy kind of boutique. There's no like layers you have to go to get through me. Whoever wants to show me the work, you know. I'm pretty much open to seeing it. Yeah, but there's obviously certain things that you you can't be on top of everything. What happens more frequently? Someone comes into your office and says, "The plane has just crashed into the mountain," or someone comes into your office and says, "I think we have something that couldn't that could be not just great but special," and I'd like you to look at that. It. The the latter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when the plane goes in the mountain. We, it's usually David and I together trying to figure it out, but because we have great ECDs, I mean they're great at handling that stuff. Right. Where I usually come in is when before they show the before you know the metaphorical plane takes off. So you know I'm I'm, I'm usually in the earlier stages, and then um, the ECDs are very skilled at handling all the all the. They get to deal with when the plane crashes. In they the do. I get to go home. No, yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's uh, you know. It, there's no system. We just, whatever needs, you know, as David says, you go where you're needed. Right. Um, BBDO New York was named agency of the year at four major award shows this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been here before. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, you've experienced this before. I'm wondering if your response to these accolades have changed from the early days when it was still new to you to the way that you might respond to them today. The early days when I was a, before I was a CCO or? The early days when there wasn't a long track record of success and oh. maybe you hadn't experienced oh, yeah. being I, agency. It's different. It's, it's different. I, I always thought that it feels worse to lose awards than it does better to win them. It's just my paranoia, you yeah. know, because I, I just feel relieved when I win it. I'm not like psyched around like, oh, right. look what we did. It's kind of like, okay, I can relax for a day. We've. You know, the pressure's off for half an hour. I don't, I, you know, it, it never gloating or anything like that. I just kind of feel like, okay, cool. We we did what we set out to do for this year, and now we start over. It's vindication that, like, I'm still good for five more minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I've got a lot. I, I just added another five minutes to the to the life preserver. Yeah. Yeah, how, I mean, how long do you get to enjoy with each passing with each passing year that you guys are named agency of the year or or win a Grand Prix? 
um, does the window of time to enjoy it shrink? It stops as soon as they announce it. It really does. <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even Man. messing with it because then there's that pressure of okay, now we got to start over, and people are going to compare next year to this year. So it's it, it is a constant pressure. That's why people never tie. The awards are the worst thing for sleep because right. <laughs> you know they just put all this undue angst into people in outside of advertising. Nobody really cares. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what's your relationship with caring about awards? Um, well, obviously when I was a lot younger and I had to prove myself constantly that I even knew what I was doing, they were a form of validation for that. You know, you walk into a creative director's office and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, he, um, he knows what he's doing. He's won a few awards. Now it's just all about the agency, like how well the agency does. Right. It's not about me anymore. What what a track record of winning a lot of awards does is that you you're often given the benefit of the doubt when it's a subjective call on creativity, right? Because you know you've you've had outside validation again. Yeah, in a lot, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about data a little bit because you did an op-ed about data. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, data is trying to bridge the gap to answer a question for the agency and clients that cannot be fully answered, which is like, and for these reasons, yes. we can guarantee this idea will work. Yes. In the absence of I can guarantee this idea works based on data, maybe the next best thing, and up until a few years ago, an even better thing was when someone like Greg Hahn can say, I can't guarantee it's going to work, but I've been here before, yes. and I've felt this feeling before, so In trust me. Interesting you say that. Like, if you put it that way, then awards are a form of data. It's like the data says he knows what he's doing. Right. <laughs> you know, um, it's, a, it's a provable point of, of uh, information. Right. Yep. Um, in response to the agency of the year at the four major award shows, you said in an Adweek piece, quote, it's a sign of the fact that everyone here is on the same mission, unquote. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Do you get a sense, like, when you win from uh, agency of the year, it's, it's, it's over a lot of uh, different clients, a lot of different projects. So to me, that's more important than just having one shining project that carries you through Right. So if, it feels like when you walk into BBDO, it's a creative shop. You know you're here to do good work. It's not about it's not about anything other than that. So everyone we hire from the project managers, they're they're into the work and they know where North Star is. Yeah. So you definitely get that sense. It's not a, a fractured kind of feeling of, oh, they're doing the good work and these people are slugging through and we know where this conversation is going to end. It's just going to, you know, end in on this side of the field, it's always going to end on the side of what makes the work better. Yeah. I mean, for someone like you who's sort of been to that mountaintop many times, I assume there are certain principles that there's principles of creativity that, mm. that don't change. And then there are certain ways that you're always trying to think about how yeah. to adapt and change. Did you, did you find yourself as an agency doing anything different this past year than, than, than in years past? Um, I don't think there's anything remarkably different. We we have incorporated a lot of data, you know, I will say that. And and you know, basically the piece I wrote was that creative shouldn't be afraid of data. It just sounds scary. It's uh, the the word data is like the antithesis of creativity. But if used right, it's it's a very helpful tool. Um I think to me it's always come down to a, a two steps of creativity is first what to say, second is how to say it. And I think the second part's the easy part. The first part is coming up with something very interesting, something insightful, and something that no one else has thought of, and then using that as your basis to do something cool with executionally. So data really helps with what's the insight that no one 
what, what can you uncover about human behavior that no one else has? So you're saying you are not a curmudgeon yearning for the old days when you could sell an idea based on gut instinct alone? No. I mean, I think data helps you sell an idea. Because right. put it this way, when you when you present your idea, they have to go sell it up the ladder like you know, many times without you there saying how cool it is. So what they're going to say is, yeah, we found this piece of data that says this fact, and then here's the creative that's based off that. And then you can't really argue data because it's numbers. So like, okay, well, if unless the execution is completely off-putting, it helps, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to go with what the data says if it's based on something solid. Now shoot me straight. How often, if ever, do you start with an idea that you love based on gut instinct and then back into the well, data and strategy that defends Oh, that, that happens course. all the time. And I'm not saying we're, we're slaves to data by any stretch, but I am saying that if you have an idea, gut instinct, it's usually based on an insight that more often than not, it's it's pretty provable and backed up. I think creatives, the good creatives have very strong instincts about strategy. You know, right. They start with something interesting, a different way to say something. You know, what's the human... It's like stand-up comedy a lot. It's like, what's that deep emotional human insight, that observation that we all kind of feel that maybe no one has expressed yet? Right. Um, and that's often bared out by data. Yeah. You know it's true. You've just never heard anyone yeah, word exactly. it quite that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, great strategy is like, I don't need data to defend what I'm about to say because I've felt it my whole life in a way that's bigger than me and it's mm-hmm. part of the human experience. And so I invite anyone in this agency to go and seek the numbers to defend this because I know they exist. I yeah, just don't exactly. know exactly what they are. Yeah, I mean, the Snickers example, which is something John Franco and Peter came up with who are creatives, it's a very strategic thought. You're not you when you're hungry. It's an right. insight. It's a human insight. Um, but they didn't use data to find that. They, you know, thinking about behavior, human behavior themselves, personal. And then if you go back and look at the data, this is a seven-year-old campaign. That thing, you know, has been so successful. Uh, and, it, you know, people will back up of, you can trace behaviors between people hungry and not hungry and see that there's a difference. Yeah. So you talked about how data helps defend an idea, which ultimately helps sell an idea. I want to ask you about the salesmanship of ideas. Mm. I brought that word up with Lubars and yeah. he, it made him physically recoil. He did not <laughs> like the idea of salesmanship yeah. or the selling of ideas. Do you share, uh, do you, do you share that disdain for the notion of salesmanship? You could probably tell that I'm not, into the salesmanship of the whole thing. I, yeah, if, I hate being sold to, and I hate the feeling of having to try to sell something. This, this is not my natural demeanor. I, I think the 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 presentation skill is just in understanding and listening and building trust and letting a client know that you're here to solve their problems, not to you know, make yourself famous. Yeah. It's also incredibly disarming, yeah. and it, it, it sort of matches your demeanor. Yeah, you don't come off as someone who's like, I've got something I'm so excited. Just sit back and relax because I'm going to show you an idea that's going to change your business. Yeah. And so it's sort of it's anti-selling. Yeah, yeah. Some, and, and there are people that are great at both. You have to do whatever your style. I mean, if you go to different pitches, you'll right. see stuff. It's like, I would buy anything that guy is selling me, and then you realize the work isn't there. I'd rather go in and fully believe in what I, you know, I don't like to go to a presentation unless I completely believe in the ideas I'm selling. So clients hopefully will sense that from me that I'm being genuine. So I think that's my key to selling is be genuine, listen, and and put, they, they also come to you for a point of view. So have a strong point of view. Yeah. Is your presence in those meetings sort of at the point of impact when a big decision is being made about ideas? Is that 
Is that a pretty big part of your job to go to attend those meetings and sort of, I'm not going to say help sell the idea, but but make sure they go well. So, um, it depends. Yeah, it depends on the the client, the ones that have been with the groups for you know five six years. Yeah. They know the ECD so well that um, they just have an open relationship. For new business, definitely um, newer clients probably where that matters most until there's like this trust and we've done some stuff for them and they can sort of all get to know each other. But um, yeah, they don't bring me in. To, <laughs> I'm not the heavy guns. Right. Is there, is there a client or two that has kind of been your baby for a while? So you find yourself showing up and almost being in the role of the ECD alongside the ECD on the account? Well, no, because I've been CCO for so long that um, a lot of the clients have shifted and changed. I used right. to work on FedEx all along, but uh, there's been some, you know, different clients coming in and out of that. So I don't, I don't go to those meetings every time now. Uh, I still work on you know, certain projects, like the ones that are, that we got, more the ones that we got as new business when I was started as CCO. Yeah, is part of your job to develop relationships with CMOs? Uh, you know, I, I I don't see that as like my biggest contribution. David's very good at that. Uh, I think that I'm good in new business kind of things and pitches and, and, um, you know, meeting with clients, but, uh, I'm not, my forte is not just whining and dining. Right. Yeah. You have a distinctive look. Do you switch up your look, uh, heading into a a meeting with a senior executive or CMO? No. (laughs) Well, I I don't wear a t-shirt. It depends. Yeah. You got to show a little respect, but. So you do switch up your look. I I guess I do. It depends on, I, I, I still look like I rolled off the streets. I can't help that, but you know, you got to show a little respect. But I, I, I think there's something to the fact that clients don't want people that look like them. You know. Yeah. Um, if you went to a surgeon and he looked like he didn't belong, that's not a good thing. But you go to a, uh, you know, someplace creative, then you kind of want the feeling that they don't have to be, you know, the people, same people you're running into your hallways. Yeah, a suit projects. Uh, a certain set of values that, you know, yeah, if you're being sued and you want to go and meet a lawyer, you want him in that, yeah. you want him yeah. in that yeah. uniform that says he's a very serious person. I don't person. want the cool lawyer. <laughs> no, exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Or the cool dentist. I want the, yeah, no, um, the but uncool lawyer. I don't want this to sound pompous, but I think there's something to be said for like, you want your attire, your look to project this notion that like, I'm so good at what I do that I get to dress like this. That's the Hollywood m- method. You see these people that, that drive, um, you know, hundred thousand dollars cars that look like they just walked out of yeah. the, he must you know, be important yeah yeah <laughs> the, <laughs> he came this, into nobu in sweatpants he must be important yeah, the status symbol is anti-dressing yes. yeah. um on any given work day do you have a favorite way to invest an hour uh, you mean a free hour uh like no like oh if i what what would i love to be doing if what I, what's the, what's your what's the best way to spend an hour of all the ways that you might spend an hour in a day i love meeting with teams and hearing ideas when we're just starting that process of like when they come and go, we have a meeting in a week, here's where we are, here's some thoughts. And we're, you know, that's the, the ground floor is kind of fun for me. Yeah. I'd like to, uh, I like to talk ideas. Yeah. And, and given the role that you play at the agency, we talked about validation teams and even senior teams and ECDs, when they come to meet with you, are they looking for an excitability? Are they looking for a validation that that they're going to leave this office and they're going to go to that client presentation and they should feel good knowing that? I think they're looking yeah. more for direction. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's every once in a while we'll, they'll send me the deck right before they have a meeting, but they know that I I'm, I might have changes or thoughts. So we usually start 
a little bit more in of like, here's where we are. Which, which ones are you guys leaning towards? Where you know, We'll just talk about it. I don't think they're looking at, at me to go, you are so awesome for coming up with this. It's more right. about like, here's where we are. How can we think this could be cool? And, and there's this thing we kind of like, you know, it's, it depends on, on the teams too. And in the ECDs, some ECDs come with finished decks and you're like, oh, go make that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You said you don't love being sold to. Is that ever a problem with, you know, there's different personality types. Sometimes you get creatives who can be a little big in their presentation yeah. of an idea to you. Yeah, that doesn't happen to BBDO. There's no, like, there's no presentation. I remember, this is funny because it's it also applies to David. When I when I was interviewing at BBDO where I just came around, you know, I was still working at Fallon. I went to visit BBDO. And I sat in a meeting with some creative people that were pitching to David. And they started with this whole, imagine a world, you know, like this big, huge setup. And I could tell David is going to, kill this like please guys I, I was like trying to throw them signals of no stop but i could i could tell this was david, burning david up inside because you know it's not about the, the presentation it's about the work so you know he's a hand me the script kind of person or hand me the idea whatever you know the write-up and uh I'll, I'll look at it you don't need to sell me on it we're here to to, to look at the work yeah yeah when you when you see something with the potential to be special mm-hmm what might that like? You just said, "Yep, go make this." Like, yeah. is that as good as someone's going to no, get from you? No, no. I usually don't do that. I, I usually like start talking about why I like it and, and things right. like that. There's a there, there's usually I have a strong internal gut feeling about what's going to work. I usually try to stick with that. My first reaction is if I see something that my immediate thought is, "How can we make this? How can we protect this? How can we get this done?" No matter what happens. Like I always start thinking about ways that people are going to start to kill this and how can we defend that? You know, right. so as soon as you start feeling defensive over an idea, you in- instinctively know that's an idea. That's a good idea. The ones that you're kind of like, eh, uh, I could see it working. doesn't throw me. That's the kind of ones I throw aside. I usually, that's the test I use for teams too. It's like if I see a deck and I'm not feeling it, I'm like, what in here are you guys dying to make? Right. And we'll go back and maybe they'll, they'll talk to me about something that I didn't see or they see it in a way that I wasn't catching and we'll find the good stuff or they'll go, well, nothing. I'm like, well, then we got to come back when you're dying to make something. You know? With younger teams who ha- haven't had a lot of exposure to you, maybe haven't developed that comfort level mm-hmm. with you. Do you ever find yourself needing to sort of prod them into speaking their mind and not being so deferential? Yeah. Um, I think after after meeting with me, that that, that kind of goes away. But that is a problem when you're a CCO is that you want people that aren't just going to look for what you're trying to say and then agree with that. Right. Because I do kind of get the feeling that some people are just, no matter what I say, they're going to say yes. And, you know, I might be wrong. Yeah. Do you worry about being too hard on people or too soft on people? Given the choice of either? Like which which one, if if you had the choice of which may keep you up at night more, is it that, gosh, I should... I should tighten the screws on people a little bit more. Probably that one. Probably that one. But um, I try to make it a balance. I never, nothing goes out of the building that I've seen that I'm like, um, you know, I didn't think we were there yet, but we had to, I usually try to, you know, at least give it the best effort of like, okay, we have something, we have something that I like. But um, I I think the hardest thing is when you're shown a, a lot of work and they've obviously put a lot of work into it and there's just nothing that you're liking. So that's the skill of how do you send them back without being completely discouraged. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of like, again, going back to like, well, tell me what you guys are liking and why you're liking it. And there's usually an idea buried in there and hearing them explain it's nine times out of 10, way more interesting than the execution that they've brought. So, you know, there's usually something to start with. 
I like to send them back to the table with a grain of, of, you know, something to work with. Yeah. You talked about how, when you like something or when it sort of captures your imagination, you can start imagining it. You can start thinking about how to usher it through the idiot forest. Yeah. Um, more often than not. I did not, not use the term idiot force. <laughs> I heard idiot force is a Lee Clow term that I heard and I was like, oh my God, that's so good. That but the good. problem with idiot forest is suddenly how do you how do you bring it up without making the person you're talking to feel like one of the idiots? But it's like, yeah. well, if I'm telling talking to you about it, you're obviously not yeah. one of the it's idiots. The, it's idiot. the other people. It's the other people. It's not you. Yeah. Um, but it's not, so my term, Lee's term, ushering it through the idiot forest. And then more often than not, I mean, you have a long enough track record now of do you find that the thing that's first in your head mm-hmm. uh, is wildly different than the final product? Or, or is the thing that's, that's in your head in the early going, is that sort of a tacit blueprint of what the thing ends up? Like, how, how, um, how firmly do you hold sort of your early thoughts on what something should look like or feel like versus sort of the final output? I'm way open to change. It depends on what it is. If it's a, you know, if it's something that requires a lot of other people to get involved, yeah. then you kind of hire people for their vision, kind of let them go, and it's usually a dialogue. But at that point, I, once I've approved the idea, the teams go off and make it, and then I'll look at edits and things like that. But I won't, um, you know, I won't babysit every step of the process. We've got great people that yeah. kind of go see it once we all align on what the vision is. And sometimes I'll look at treatments. Yeah. But um, you know, a lot of things turn out better than if I wasn't. Like I always think of some of these directors. I'm like, I wasn't. It was. We'll take Spike Jones. Like I, you know. I wasn't there when you made being John Malkovich, and that turned out okay. So right, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have this one. You know what? It's a skill that a lot of my colleagues and I who worked at Crispin had to sort of um, uh, reassess once we left the agency, because there, as part of the culture there during that sort of heyday, we would hire these great directors, and then we'd stand over their shoulders and be all yeah. over them. Yeah. And it was just, it was part of our culture. Yeah. I mean, that, um, and, and like, you know, the outcome was oftentimes good. Sometimes, sometimes things were less artistic than they could have been yeah. had we not meddled. Um, so there's different cultures at different agencies. How do you approach the relationship with directors? We have such a good relationship with certain directors. Like, it's, they're very much part of the team. Like, we work with a lot of the same ones over again. So, you know, we get on the call with them and, you know, it's, there's no bullshit. It's just kind of there. And most of the directors that we work with are pretty good about like us being up at the camera, you know, one of us, right. not everybody, but, and then in collaborating. And it also, again, depends on the execution. It's a very mechanical visual execution. It's kind of like get out of their way. But if it's a dialogue thing where you're right, constantly writing on script, you know, on the set, then I'd like to, you know, have the teams or somebody right up there and throwing lines and, you know, making it happen in the moment. Who has been the main, um, outlier to that who was the director who was so accomplished that it felt like you guys were like okay we got to hire him and just stay away from him um a lot of people um I, well the weirdest experience was working with, on bmw films because you had these filmmakers you know these mastermind iconic filmmakers like john woo and you know ridley or tony scott was the director on one of them and ridley was producer so it's like you know, you don't really want to get in their way. And people are, are logging on to those things to see a John Woo film, not a Greg Hahn film. So I I would have done things differently, but that's not what, you know, people aren't paying millions of dollars to see my film. Enough time has passed that there's this whole new generation of creatives who don't know BMW films mm-hmm. and probably pitch you ideas that are basically BMW films yeah. unbeknownst to them. Uh, how do you handle something like that? 
Well, there's so much that has been done between now and then. It's kind of like I don't have to go like, oh, that's like BMW Films. I go like, that's like that thing I was done two weeks ago. Right. You know, there's just been so much done between the now and um, you know when when that whole thing's kicked off. So you talked about how ECD sends you work, mm-hmm. and you can comment on edits. Um, are you a tinker? Are you someone who knows when something is done? Uh, yeah, or, I can I can say finished, yeah. um, but I do like. I, where I get my kind of micromanagey is in edits because I have this weird kind of fetish about timing and and things like that. I've I don't. Are you like, hey, can we take uh, six frames? Yes. Off of the, yeah. Yeah, they hate me. Like Ian McKenzie, <laughs> I'm sure he, he has nightmares when when we edit. But I I I do. There's just something is like I know nobody's gonna feel this but me. But two frames, you know, just take it. Two frames. Yeah, and that kind of thing is like. Yeah, that feels better. Did you do anything? No. <laughs> well, this is the thing, though. It's this is part of this is one of the main moments where you re- you legitimately have control. Yeah. So yeah, no one is coming for a Greg Hahn film. They're coming for a John Woo film. But John Woo isn't here anymore. Yeah. Now Greg is here, and yeah. like the editor's here, and the yeah. team is here, and and so yeah. I mean, yeah, no, yeah, that was more of the when I was a writer. Now I go, I look at that. It's like general comments, pretty much, unless something feels completely not working, then I'll try to you know offer a suggestion, but. Is more about when I was a writer or creative director than CCO. I can't. There's too much going on to to get that involved. But certain projects. Yeah, I think one of the great things about being able to look at edits and have that distance is like mm. even the the best creatives. Once you're when you're in the thick of it, yes. you were on set. You've been in the pre pro. You've been in the edit for two or three days. No matter how good you are, it's just really hard to step back and totally know what you're looking at. So sometimes they probably send stuff to you, and you're like, it's so like you, there's four things you need to do, and they're incredibly obvious. Yes, exactly. I find that, and and a lot of times I do that on purpose. It's like don't show me until you know until you're ready to show you know do you think it's there and i'll step away from it won't even see anything and then yeah there'll be like one or two things like i didn't even get oh that's what you're trying to say i did not get that please fix that you know and it to them it's so obvious because they have so, all this information that we're they're assuming is clear but not you know yeah yeah um when you achieve greatness in the form of an agency of the year or a grand prix um how do you keep the agency's sort of collective ego in check is it an issue? It's. I don't think that's an issue. I don't know. You tell me. What's the word on the street? I don't think we have those that kind of culture where we, we strut around. Yeah. I think it's it's pretty much heads down. Yeah. Um, individually, I, I I don't even sense that. I I don't I don't think it's a brash kind of strutty culture. Do you get any social anxiety before you go to award shows and and award and like uh, industry events? Do you think I should? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just curious. No. I do a little bit. Um, uh, I'm not you, but I'm well, just no, kind of curious if you do. I mean, I know most of those people there by the, at this point. So right. I, I really, those aren't the kind of things I get social anxiety. I get social anxiety if I don't know anybody or, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't go to a lot of them, but. Usually, you go to Cannes and get to hang out with your friends who all live within a mile of you that exactly. you, you never see. So you have to fly 3,000 miles to hang yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. It's so. usually the only time I see these people, but I don't, yeah, I, ad, ad functions are generally kind of fun because you get to see people that you don't see every day and you yeah. know, you know. There's so many people that it's two degrees of separation from agencies and things. Yeah. Well, I guess this goes to the 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 ego question a little bit. I mean, there, you think about an agency broken up, you know, in its basics into a creative department, a strategy department, an account mm-hmm. department, and a production department. Um, how do you think about the way that those groups work and, like, sort of where does the creative department – does does it feel like the creative department is – 
the sun in the solar system of the agency? And is that what's needed uh, to get to great creative work? Or does it feel more like I wouldn't say, a democracy? Well, let's put it a different way. I wouldn't say the creative department is the sun. I'd say creativity is the sun. Right. So everybody there is working on creativity, and the creative department has a certain role in that. You know, planners have a certain role in that. Account people have a certain role in that. So the mission is create, create, you know, great creative, and the departments are names yeah. you know, and di- divisions of labor. But I don't think it's like prima donna creative department and right. everyone else serves them. I think we serve the work, the creativity. What does it look like when, it, when it's breaking down? Does it look like you guys maybe lose the thread and it feels like, like the account team is sort of trying to, to have the next meeting be a good meeting without, yeah. a, without a sense of sort of wh- why we're here in the first place? Yeah, I think there, sometimes all the pressure gets to we just have to have a good meeting. And when you hear that, it's like, well, then you're going to end up having another meeting because we don't have to, you know. Uh, usually just having good meeting is not is not the right thing to do. Right. You know, that's I think when the pressure gets down to like it's round four and this is what they're demanding. So you always kind of have to listen. And the best strategy for that kind of thing is like show them what they've asked for and then show them something better. Right. You know, it's, it's really hard to not show them what they've asked for and sell with something better because they'll in the back of the mind go, that's not what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you stumbled upon this industry. It didn't sound, you, you did watch Bosom Buddies growing up. I did up, watch but, Bosom Buddies. I put but my maybe, time in. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe around sort of the Ohio State years is when you started yeah. to think about this more seriously as a yeah. profession. Um, now, you know, you have the chance to help people start their careers. You've been a mentor to a lot of people. Um, to a young, smart, sort of driven, artistic person who wants to be a creative in advertising, mm-hmm. is there a bit of common wisdom that you would tell them to ignore? Is there something that seems oh, like it's you know like, like it's the intuition that's all wrong about it's how to not get where a job. I thought you were going with that question? Um, I would say focus on on insights and st- and strategy. Come up with a new way to solve the problem. Because I think that's what we're doing is finding. That's why I like about advertising versus fine art is you're solving a problem, and creativity is is the tool you use to solve that problem. So a lot of times, uh, especially when you see younger books, it's all about execution and technology, and then you're. But but really, what are you trying to say? What's the truth behind all this? So don't get caught up in, don't get too overly concerned with execution. Right. You know, think about new ways of of, of looking at something. Do you find that? Your favorite creatives have a background in journalism or anthropology or psychology, or, or that's that's sort of where I come yeah. from because I, I my degree at Ohio State is journalism, but I also minored in psychology. I, I kind of, I've always had this kind of fascination with behavior and you know human behavior and that kind of thing. I I I think great creatives have an antenna and are very empathetic and can feel what other people are feeling, even though they may not sense you know agree with it or be that type of person. Right. Um, sometimes failure sets us up for a later success. Do you have a, fa- a favorite failure in your life? When I was living in L.A., I wanted so bad. My goal was to work at Shia Day. Like, I studied their work, loved it. You know, this is when I was working in a small agency in L.A. And I, my, my dream job was L.A. In L.A. was Shia Day. Like, you know, I saw 1984. I, that's what got me, you know, excited about advertising. Yeah. And I had an interview there, and I didn't get the job. And I thought, oh, man. This is crushing. Like, I don't, I don't think I'll ever recover from this. And fortunately, I didn't get a job because I got a different job that led me on this path. I could always go back and think if I'd gotten that job, I'd stayed in L.A. for so long. 
and probably burned out and God knows where I would be. But the fact that I failed and and didn't get the thing I thought I wanted, I ended up getting the thing that was better for me. Yeah. Isn't it funny? The thing you fear the most yeah. is like the thing that's going to happen. You know, it's like, and then I'm not going to be able to stay in L.A. Now, yeah. now you're as far away from L.A. as you could possibly yeah. be. And yeah. you've made your home here. And the really funny thing is like years later, they called me about a job for CCO at Chi Day L.A. And I was like, you could have had me as a junior. <laughs> <laughs> and, but now, no. Yeah. But they're doing great. So it's different yeah. story. In the last five years, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Um, obligations outside of work. You know, like the a lot of the the dinners and the stuff that's distracting from work, I guess. Um, to try to keep more of a life balance. Yeah. And travel as much. Yeah. Is there's a time in your career where that stuff is important and yeah. you sort of need to show the other people who have to show up to that stuff that you're as committed as they are. But like yeah, at, yeah. at a certain point, you must be able to graduate from that. Yeah, you don't have to go to everything. You know, I, I did feel the pressure of showing up everywhere and being out, putting myself out there. I, I don't as much. And, you know, and when you're, you know, out traveling with, with teams and things like that, it's good to bond, but you don't have to go out every night. Yeah. Is there anything about managing creativity that you haven't cracked or gotten right to the extent that you wish? Hmm. Um, I don't know if there's anything that specifically about creativity. It's more about managing people, yeah. you know, dealing with people's needs and egos and making sure everybody's heard. I think, I guess that, that that's even more of an issue with creativity is people want to know that you're listening to their ideas and you're not just rejecting everything and that you still believe them, even though you, that you don't like the work. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to not feel crushed when someone's not buying your work because it's so much of you on that table. You know, so just understanding it's like, hey, you know, you have cool stuff, but, you know, keep going. There's other you you, you, you I think the best thing for people to hear is like you've you have better than this, than what you're so excited about trying to sell me. You've done better. You have better. So just keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, people at your agency seek um, seek your mentorship and they respect your work. How conscious are you of that role that you play in the agency, do you enjoy the mentorship part of the job? Yeah, I do. I, do. I like that, but I, I often forget because I'm so focused on my thing. I'm, you know, go down the halls with blinders on. Sometimes I forget that people are watching, and you know, if I say hi to somebody, that they notice that. Uh, I, I, that's one thing I definitely have to be better is sort of spreading, spreading myself around a little bit more, and and um, meeting, making sure everybody in the creative department, you know, gets gets to you know, ch- a chance to say what they, you know, how they're feeling. Uh, we talked about directors a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so play along with this hypothetical that the fate of humanity rests on one 30-second spot. It's got to be hysterical. It's being produced by BBDO, and you have to select the director. Humanity's fate is on the line. Who do you select? I'd do it myself, man. Mm. No. People do want to see a Greg Hahn film, it turns out. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that because we have so many great directors we work with, and you can't say that without pissing somebody off or hurting somebody's feelings. We have so many so, you know, in every day we come up with like a lot, you know, you, that's one good thing about like all these channels with, um, you know, uh, Funny or Die or just some of these SNL directors that we've worked with that you don't have to be a big, huge name just to to do funny stuff. Having said that, Jim Jenkins. Jim Jenkins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is he really not going to give me? Well, I, I mean, yeah, it's just a goofy way of asking. I mean, yeah, over no, I like the years. Jim Jenkins, making- David Shane, all, all positive. We work with those guys yeah. a lot, and they're always great. And, you know, they, <laughs> if you look at BBDO's reel, they've done a lot of stuff. 
Um, do you believe in the existence of a director's cut? Not for the agency. Yeah. Like why? You know, I think the challenge and the, the, the victory is getting something done that actually people see. Like, I don't need another piece for my refrigerator. Uh, you know, I want stuff that the world sees. I think that's the beauty of having all this at your disposal as a young creative. Like, what other creative field do you have that you can have an idea in the morning and, you know, a couple of weeks later, millions of people are exposed to it and some people like it. Yeah. What unfinished business do you have? You're a relatively young man. You've got great hair. Is the mm-hmm. is the goal to just keep going and see how long you guys can keep it going, or, or or is there a is there a higher aspiration? Is there a master plan? I never had a master plan. It's when you put it that way, it sounds kind of intimidating. The you know the the sort of riff you did. Um, I just keep my head down and and be good at what's what I'm doing now, and then the, the next phase will will present itself. That's usually the way I've gone. I mean, I have a direction for the agency of, you know. I want BBDO to be the one place where you can come and do the work of your life, do big, important things that people see, and be always be creative. Like there are a lot, there are enough bland big shops out there, but there are very few like really great creative big shops. And yeah, yeah I think that's BBDO's place in the world is to do big, great, and uh, you know, sort of the dichotomy of works like a small agency with the canvas of a big one. When I when I think about specifically great filmmaking i think about bbdo and wyden kennedy Mm. but bbdo and wyden kennedy have also you know pushed the boundaries of what advertising can be and how people can interact with it and now that advertising sort of finds itself being more experiential i guess would be the word and that word has a very nebulous definition um does that does that scratch your creative itch just as much as great oh absolutely it's so funny that people still think of bbdo as a, a film or tv agency because um you know, we won like Webby agencies of the year this year yeah. twice. That's like our second year of doing it, and all these other words that are, have nothing to do with TV or film. But it's still it can't shake that ninety-year legacy or however long TV's been around of of you know a great film agency. And we'll, we'll always do that. Like we we have great production people and great writers and filmmakers, but um, that's only like a small sliver. It's kind of like uh, it's a it's a blessing and a curse because. There's so much other good stuff that's going on that people will still come back to the films. You have my friend David Rolfe over there who uh, yes. loves the challenge of something like David Rolfe. Bud Light Patman or something. Yeah. Like David he, Rolfe is our secret weapon. Like you give him yeah. anything and he'll make it happen. He'll connect you with people that are developing, you know, shit in black labs that you don't even you know, you know, dark dark web stuff. So yeah, he, working he with a guy like that um, at CPB got me uh, spoiled. Mm-hmm. And you don't you don't realize once you get out into the industry that not all producers answer answer to like, hey, we've got this idea. You, it's probably impossible. Is yes. like, okay, let me figure it out. Most it, people are like, no, no, that's impossible. You know, I've if you have him. an idea, he will make it happen. Like yeah. by the time it gets to him, and you know, we're all digging it, and it's never an issue of like we can't do this. It's like let's figure this thing out. I remember I did a project for um, Pedigree because every once in a while I'll do like a random thing that for a client just on my own without, you know, having a brief. So I did this thing for Pedigree and literally <clears throat> wrote it in the morning. We were producing it the next week. It was on air within days. And that was Rolf with no budget, you know, nothing. And, um, you know, pulling together the right people and, and it turned out. So, Why do you do that? Do you, is it just nice to have something that has less players and less compromise? Yeah. Yeah. Every, you know, I think every creative still has to create. So I like to look at, you know, if, there, if I have an idea for a brand just based on something that's happening in the culture or something that's happening in the moment, I'll just go write it up and, you know, throw it around the agency and see if, if it's, it, 
you know, people are feeling that's the right thing to do. And I just, I do that just one, because it's good for the agency to see that you can be proactive and go out and do things. And it, it, it tests a lot of muscles that way, but it's also just, it's, it's good for our clients to have people constantly thinking about their business, even on stuff, mostly on stuff they didn't ask for. Yeah. So David comes to you, D- David Lubars comes to you and says, you know what? We want, we want agency of the year again. I think we're in a good spot. I, Greg, right. for your mental health, I'd like you to take a one-year sabbatical. Okay. How, how would you spend that one year? Um, it would take me so long to just adjust to not doing this. <laughs> it would be a year of checking your phone? Yeah. Seeing if anyone yeah. needed you? Exactly, yeah. I would probably head somewhere warm and um, do a, a low stress. I'd have to create something, I'd, you know, maybe um, writing like a uh, something screenplay or something like that. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering is if yeah. is there an idea for a book or an, or an idea for a screenplay that's floating ideas. around? The problem I have is that I've got a lot of ideas and a lot of I can start, but man, the daunting idea of actually writing a screenplay is is you know way beyond me at this point. No one knows better than us agency folks. There's nothing easier than putting down an idea yeah. in a paragraph in yeah. one page of a PDF. It's it's the making of shit. Yeah, I can get through. I can, I can give you. I can give you a hundred you know, minute long pieces <laughs> to give you a uh, 100 long minute long pieces is a whole different story. So I, I end this with uh, the same two questions. The first question is at any point in your career, what is the sort of most memorably horrifying response that a client gave you in a, in a presentation of your work? Hmm. There was, there was this one presentation. This I can say this because it was a project thing and they're not really, they weren't a client and they still aren't. Uh, I won't mention the client, but, one of my first presentations at BBDO, we were doing this project for a smaller client, and they had their internal creative guru, sort of fashion-y type of thing, come to the meeting, and we presented the work, and it was really, I, I still to this day will say that they should have done it. It was great. Um, we presented all the work, and he totally didn't get it. This, their creative you know, guru stood up, like literally, you know, just tore the thing stuffed pieces and us and then said he had to leave like didn't even stand around for the discussion <laughs> he's like putting his backpack yeah, on no he, his... he did he put his coat on and then walked out the door and left us just sitting there with the cmo you know he brought this guy in and all our account people and the creatives that i was with and myself we're just sitting there and then this is why i like this story is because at the time our head account person said is he going to be on this business because if he is we're not working on it we don't want to work with assholes and i was mm. like "Ooh, thank you like, I like this place. This is when you have first year in the BBDO. And the guy felt really bad. He's like, no, I apologize for that. So the, the, the client was actually cool. It was just they brought in a prima donna who was e- either threatened or just we weren't his bag. You learn a lot about people uh, when the going gets tough. And to have yeah. an account person say that in that moment yeah. tells you everything you need yeah, to know. Yeah, it's like, we don't need this. And we don't need people to treat our people that way. And that was that gave me so much more inspiration to, like, I'll do anything for this guy. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And the last question is called the one that got away. What is mm. that one idea could be from any point in your career that you love, but for whatever reason, it just never got made. It never got sold. But like before you fall asleep, you go like, oh man, that, that idea was awesome. Ah, oh, man. Th- those, those usually like I'm, I can let go. I, I don't have a lot of the, the awesome ones I'm going to try to make. I remember some, well, there's one that, that had become like sort of a running joke between me and my partner who uh, thought of it as law. This is late 90s, and I was at Fallon. Um, do you know Ellen Steinberg? No, I don't. No, okay. She was the art director, still is an art director. But at the time, we were both working at Fallon, and it was our first assignment. It was one of those ideas that 
you could almost use for anything that's selling a good deal. Like it's it's one of those cookie cutter things, which probably why it never sells. But we have tried to recycle this individually through our careers. It's become like a running joke, sort of like a performance art piece to see who can get this thing out there first. It's not even that great of an idea, but it's just one of those pieces that, you know, we've sort of like, okay, this would work for that. This would work for that. You know, I've since given up on it. But it, the idea was, it's very um, dated based on the references we use, but it was um, for a telecom company. And they had this deal that they wanted to sell. And it was just like so straightforward and so amazing. It's like any creativity is just going to get in the way of it. It's like you listen to what they have to sell because they were going on business. It was a great deal. It's like, why the hell wouldn't you do it? Right. So the, that was the idea. Basically it was an idea. The, the, the pitch was um, a, a deal so good. Anybody could sell it. So we would have, the person, the last people you would hire as spokespeople to just walk mm. sell this idea. So at the time we had O.J. Simpson, you know, this is late nineties, <laughs> like um, Tanya Harding, we had all these people that were just blacklisted from, and they were like, yeah, O.J. Simpson for blah 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 blah, and then just he went through the deal and just says a deal so good anybody could sell it. Oh man! So you know, obviously that's something that could be used for a lot of different clients if the deal is that good. If you know, and then we got really esoteric with it, which was like. This rock for, you know, this is basically a, a piece of stone for a mer- you know, whatever the client was, new blah, blah, plan. And there's just the rock sitting next to a sign with the deal. You know, so one of those ideas that you could literally now, you know, form into anything. And that, that the reason I think that's the one that got away is because we kept trying to rehash that thing for years. Now it's just become a running joke. And if I see that on TV, I'm going to be so happy that she sold it somewhere i see a twinkle in your eyes you yeah. describe this idea I, yeah. I believe in your ability i think yeah. now it's it's sort of back up in it's, it's yeah now, now you got me into it again yeah. It. yeah like there's plenty of there, there's a whole long list of celebrities that no one would use now i think it's i think it's a it's an idea whose time has come uh greg he's out i've admired your work for a long time and i've really looked forward to talking to you man so thank you for making the time thank you this. this is fun i have to say um i have listened to this podcast and i enjoy it you have a very good podcast voice I'll take it. Thanks, man. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you to the great Greg Hahn. Thank you to the One Club. Thank you to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. Thank you also to Acoustech in Atlanta who helped us out with this episode. Hey, if you like the pod, listen, subscribe, share it with a friend or colleague. And until next time, peace.